0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Lamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. This morning we have a very special guest with us. We have been associated with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries for some years of time now, and um, it is our practice in this church to not just have speakers in, but speakers who we know we know their character, uh, their abilities, and their faith. And Alicia Woods has been one of the most delightful uh, friends over the years to my family personally and to us as a church. She is a woman not only of grace but of incredible brilliance in enunciating and clarifying the things of truth. Oftentimes she's speaking most often to very hostile uh, groups, groups that are hostile to the faith. Um, but the motto of ours am is to have thinkers believe and to have believers think. And so wherever you fall on that spectrum, at home or here, um, I believe today is going to edify and encourage and strengthen you or perhaps maybe open up a door to faith that has always been closed to you. And so again, a very good friend, someone we really enjoy immensely. Would you please warmly welcome Alicia Woods.
1: seen people in like six months oh my goodness the last time I spoke to an audience was in February Um, and I spoke about 27 times in February which was an unusual large amount for me so to go from that to not seeing anybody except seeing people on these little tiny itty bitty screens is obviously life-changing so you all look lovely it's wonderful to see real-life people to know you still do exist, and you aren't just little images on my screen. I haven't been here in about two years. Um, but yet when I come back, I still see familiar faces, um, and I have people that I, that I know and I get to say hello to. So I love coming here um, because it's not someplace new. It's definitely someplace that's much more family and friends. And so what I'm going to do today, do with you today is talk with you about a passage that you probably wish had never been included in the Bible in the first place. As an apologist, as someone who deals with people who object to Christianity, that means I get the pleasure of hearing all kind of questions and objections that maybe some people wish that they could run from, but I don't get the opportunity to run from them. And there's certain stories and certain things that kind of make you a little bit nervous. The what I'm going to talk with you about today is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, just by me even mentioning that, some of you are like, oh my goodness. Like, Alicia, stay in the safe area. Stay in the New Testament. You know, don't go to any of that kind of crazy Old Testament stuff. You know, that story. How many of you have felt uncomfortable with that story? You, you can raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. I can't see half your faces anyways. Um, how many of you have just internally have felt uncomfortable with that story? Okay. It's kind of one of those things. Okay, and some bold people have raised their hand as well. It's a little bit like, boy, Lord, you could have made this thing a whole lot easier if you hadn't left that out. But yet it's there. And since I have a career in engaging people who disagree with me, who think that my view is. Um, juvenile or uneducated or that, uh, you know, I believe in this thing because I believe in fairy tales and these kind of things. Contrary to society who says, by the way, you can only talk to people who agree with you, right? My entire job is talking to people who don't agree with me. And I actually like that. It's really fun. Like, I can handle your, I think this thing is nuts, great, let's sit down and have coffee, you're my new best friend, right? I like this episode. It actually grieves me when I see people like, oh, you can only say a certain kind of thing, um, you know, in order for you to have a discussion. Totally not my world. Um, my former boss, Abdu, his, uh, will be here next week. He's not that good. You don't have to come for it. Don't worry about it. No, i um, He's great. You should come for it. But um, I think, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but he does at other times speak on something called cancel culture. Right, And that's a lot of what we're in right now. You don't say something I like, I don't even really want your existence. Um, and yet, here I am before you to talk about something that you don't really like. Stir that pot a little bit because 2020 hasn't been bad enough. She talks about this thing. But look, I think that there is something here that is actually going to be really helpful for us. And my goal by the end of my time with you is to make you no longer nervous about this story. To actually even look forward To talking about it. But with that said, yes, this is a a problem passage for many people. I want to actually read you one particular atheist, Robert Nielsen, said about this passage. He says, we then come to one of the most horrifying stories in the Bible, Genesis 22. God demands that Abraham sacrifice his only son, who is still a boy, to God as a burnt offering. But Abraham does not question God who I defy anyone to claim is still loving and merciful. What sort of foul creature would demand a man murder his only son? That is not the action of a kind and gentle religion, but of a brainwashed and murderous cult. What is the lesson here? That we should be willing to murder those we love most if God tells us to? Any God that demands such a thing is not worthy of worship. And you're saying, Alicia, stay away from it. Many of you are familiar with what's commonly referred to as the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. God made a series of covenants with different people in the Old Testament. One of them he made with Abraham. And this covenant came, uh, included many things. One of them was that your descendants would be as numerous as the stars. All the nations would be blessed through you. That God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. So there was a variety of different things that were part of this covenant. But here's the interesting thing. If my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars, then I need to have descendants. And Abraham and his wife Sarah have no children. What's interesting about this is, as is normal custom of the time, Sarah figures God made a mistake. God's really not going to fulfill his promise. And and she encourages her husband to go and have a child with Hagar, her maidservant. Totally normal practice at the time. And he does. And he has Ishmael. But if you were to read in Genesis 17, you'll see that God makes the covenant not just with Abraham, but with Abraham and Sarah. It isn't just whoever Abraham's son is. It's whoever Their child is. And the reason why that's important is because so often you will hear of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. We all trace our roots back to Abraham. There is some truth to that, actually. Okay? We would all have great high esteem for Abraham. We would all see him as a prophet. We would all reverence him. But there is a breakage in the connection when it comes to the birth of children here. When Ishmael is born, he uh, uh, several years after that, or either way, Sarah gets angry. She gets frustrated with Hagar, kicks him out, her and her son. And if you were to look at uh, Islamic history, they trace Muhammad back to Ishmael. So they would say that Muhammad is a descendant of Ishmael. So therefore, we are God's chosen people. Therefore, the covenant that God made was with us, the Muslims. But what's interesting is the Bible tells us the covenant was made with Abraham and Sarah. And so she goes on to have Isaac. Not long after Isaac's born, I don't know, some people guess maybe he's a teenager. There, we don't really know exactly the age that Isaac was. But he was old enough to know what was going on. Clearly, able to know what's going on. Uh, God asks Abraham to do something. That makes us nervous. We're going to jump into Genesis 22. You can read it on your phone. You can read it um, along the screen with me or in an actual physical Bible, if any of us um, have those. And we are going to deal with this passage together. So, let's begin at verse 1. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Let me stop us right there. We made it real far. What, five, six words? There we are. Okay? Okay? God, from the beginning, tests Abraham. So it means we know this is a test. The very first sentence tells us this is a test. Okay? There's no question here. It's clearly stated. Let's keep going. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. It's interesting that God says your only son, if he already had Ishmael. God, sees God knows that there's something unique about this son. The Jews and the Christians trace their bloodline through Isaac. And you trace it all the way through to Jesus. Okay, God is identifying him as something different. Your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering at a mountain I will show you. Now, this burnt offering word is actually really important here. Okay? There was a variety of different offerings you could do okay, in the Old Testament. One would be a sin or guilt offering, which is when you know, I've done something wrong, I've committed an immoral act, I need to make this offering before God. So a sin or guilt offering is in response to something that I've done wrong. A burnt offering is not that. A burnt offering is an offering that you give as a sign of your devotion to God. It is not a result of sin. It is a sign of this is my love for you. So God is saying, I want you, Abraham, to give me not a sin offering, this isn't a punishment, to give me a burnt offering, which is a sign of your devotion to me. He sacrifice him there as a burnt offering in a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Interesting phrase. We, Abraham and Isaac, we are going to worship and then we are coming back to you. What do you make of this? Well, thankfully, we don't have to play a lot of guessing games because the New Testament in Hebrews 11 helps us answer this. And it basically says, look, even Abraham reasoned that if God was going to make him kill his son, he would raise him from the dead because Abraham knew the covenant that God had made. And God does not want to go back on his promises. He makes a promise. He makes a covenant. There's times when we screw things up and those, and then, then what God's plan was is thwarted. But God doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to do this from you, Abraham, and then I'm going to kill your son, and then it's going to be confusion. So even Abraham reasoned maybe that there's something going to happen here, God could raise him from the dead. Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. It's an interesting thought. But let's keep going. So, um, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering and said of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Until this day it is said, in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Interesting choice of words. The Lord will provide. Now, if any of you have ever gone to Sunday school as kids or have been a part of regular church services, you've heard this story talked about, okay? And what you've also heard is that there's a lot of parallels between this particular story and Jesus, okay? This is probably not going to be revolutionary what I'm going to say to you next, but we know that these parallels are there. We know, number one, both Isaac and Jesus were promised sons. We know, number two, both Isaac and Jesus were prophesied sons. They were told they were to come before they came. But number three, Both Isaac and Jesus carried their own wood to their sacrifice. Now, there's other parallels that you can find. These are just three that I wrote. But I think that third one is so interesting. Isaac carried his wood, and Jesus carried his cross. All right. But now you're like, yep, I don't feel much better, Alicia. Thank you very much. All right? I told you to say it on the Old Testament. I told you to leave it alone. Like, you should never have touched this passage. This is infanticide. This is murder. How can this be in the Bible? Well, because I think, my friends, that there is a message that God is trying to communicate to Abraham in this passage that relates not just to Abraham, but also to us today as well. And that message is simple. If you are going to show your love or devotion to God, Abraham... It cannot just be with your words, but it has to be with your actions. I think God is still saying to us today, if you want to show your love or devotion to me, my children, then it cannot just be with your words, but it also must be with your actions. This was God making Abraham be not just a man of the verbal things that come out of his mouth, but a man whose actions reflect his words. Part of our challenge, I think, when I look at our culture, is I see a lot of confusing messages. I think there's a lot of things in culture I would change. Okay, I know there's a lot of things in culture I would change, actually. Okay, one of them has to do with the word love. We are so utterly confused as to what love is. And part of that might have to do with one of my favorite things, Disney. Think of the Disney movies you watched as a kid. I think of the ones that I watched as a kid. I remember when The Little Mermaid came out, and now I'm dating myself, but that's fine. I and mean, everybody was so excited because they had this crab that had this like Jamaican accent, which was like so cool. And I I mean I sang under the sea with the best of the best. I mean, Disney should have hired me. I mean, that's just the reality. You know? Aladdin, um, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King My. I mean, yeah, I did it all, okay? I love it all. It's so great, right? Great songs, great movies. But here's how Disney oftentimes goes. There's this great princess, and she's in distress, or a young lady, and she's in distress. And there's this amazing, perfect man who comes to save her. His hair is exactly right. His looks are exactly right. He's wealthy. He's strong. He sacrifices and fights the bad guys for her. And she absolutely falls in love because he is the epitome of perfection. And they get married and they say, I do. And the movie ends. It always ends at the wedding. Why don't they show day two, which is the reality of life, which by that point... She's already gotten annoyed because he did this thing and she mouthed off about this thing and he's annoyed with her. That is real life. That is really when the love and the I do's kick in on a whole different level. But Disney stops us at the wedding. And so we think of love as this perfectly bliss, emotional experience. But I think that there's more to love than just emotions. I think emotions is part of it. Fine. But it's not all of it. There's more to love than how you feel. And the problem is, is we say things like, oh, love is love. All that matters is love. And we have no idea what this means. And then we go ahead and use love as our moral compass. We think of love as an emotion and then we therefore let our emotions determine what we will and will not do. Your emotions are not your best moral guide, my friends. They can lead you to do wrong things. They can lead you to say hurtful things. They can lead you to tear people down with your words or actions. So when I look at the Bible, thankfully God figured we'd be confused about love at some point in history. So he devoted an entire chapter to what love fully is. And it says this, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Here's what's interesting to me about this definition of love. Okay? is when it says love is patient, love is kind, it's not talking about love is being patient with yourself or love is being kind to yourself or forgiving the wrongs of yourself. You are patient with somebody else. You are kind with somebody else. You don't keep a record of wrongs of somebody else. You are persevering with somebody else. This, is what t- this love definition is telling us how to interact with somebody else. That love, there is an external aspect of love that is more than just an emotional response. It has to do with how you act and treat other people. Love is action, not just emotion. And when you have the two of them together, now you've got a beautiful picture. But there's probably many married people in here who will tell me that the emotion fades and love becomes about commitment, covenants. And I think that's great because our emotions go all over the place. And so what essentially God is telling Abraham, look, Abraham, I want you to show love for me, not just with your words, but with your external actions but here's the thing abraham i'm asking this of you but i'm also going to ask it of me what i'm asking you to do abraham is to sacrifice the son the promised son the only son the prophesied son as a demonstration of your love for me let's go back to the text for a second Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abram, father, yes, my son, Abram replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's not stupid. He's like, we're going up here. We're sacrificing. What are we sacrificing here, dad? And Abram says in verse eight, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And then verse 13 says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Let me ask you a question. What did, how did Abraham answer Isaac? What did he say would be sacrificed for the burnt offering? A what? A lamb. What did Abraham sacrifice in verse 13? A ram. Those are two very different things. A ram is an adult male. A lamb is a baby, male or female. Those are different things. So if you're someone who said, look, I knew that Bible was full of contradictions. I told you to say it out of the Old Testament, Alicia. I'm giving you an easy one here. Is this a contradiction? Did the Bible mess this up? Did Abraham get this wrong? I don't think so. I actually don't think this is a mistake or contradiction at all. But I don't think that the lamb that Abraham referred to was what was going to be sacrificed that day. God was going to provide that lamb. Fast forward a few thousand years, and a little baby's born. Years before, the prophet Isaiah said that this baby would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His father of the baby is told that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. And his young mother is told that he will be a king, the son of God. But the biblical author John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, my friends, we begin to put the whole thing together. Abram was right. The Lord would provide the lamb for the sacrifice, but it was never going to be Isaac. Isaac was not the lamb. The Lord stopped that sac- sacrifice from having, but thousands of years into the future, a lamb would be sacrificed, and God would not send an angel to stop that one. And in so doing, what God is saying to Abram and what he's saying to us is, I love you, not just in my words, but also in my actions. What I ask of you, what I ask of Abraham, I myself do. And this helps us make perfect sense of Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? That verse only makes sense if Jesus is God. Think about it. God demonstrates love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If if Jesus and God are completely separate, as some people believe, some religions teach, then that's a problem. It would be like me saying, I want to show my love for somebody in this, in this lower half here. So I want somebody in the balcony to go and sacrifice their lives so I can show my love for them. You don't show your love for somebody else by sacrificing somebody else. You show your love for somebody by sacrificing yourself. And that's why God was never going to let Abraham go through with that. Abraham, you don't show love for me by sacrificing somebody else. You show your love for me with your own body. You know, several um, years ago, I was in Hawaii. And we I can't even quite remember what the talk was on. Maybe it was suffering or something like that. Evils, horrendous evils is what it was on. And I was there with my colleague, Andy Bannister. And during the Q&A, one gentleman stood up and said, What would Jesus say to ISIS? And now you all are glad you don't have my job. Now, Andy ended up answering that question, but I never forgot that question that stayed with me. I can't tell you exactly what Jesus would say. I can't speak for him. But let me give you a possibility. I wonder if what he would say is that you are giving your life and sacrificing the life of others for God who will never sacrifice for you. You are sacrificing yourself. You are sacrificing other people, and your God won't do the same for you. What He's asked you to do, He won't do. Abraham, I'm asking you to sacrifice your son, but I'm not sacrificing mine. See, the beautiful thing to me about Christianity is confusing as a trinity is, and we're like, I don't know, three who's and clovers and sun, and we got all these kind of things that just don't work, analogies that don't work because there's nothing like them around us that we can use as an analogy. But as confusing as it is, it, it demonstrates the perfection of God. It demonstrates his perfection. Because if I am asked to sacrifice my life for him, then all I'm doing is matching what he's already done for me. I'm not doing something greater. Jesus himself said, No greater love does anybody have than this. Then they lay down their life. For a friend. The greatest way to show love is through self-sacrifice. If I give my life, I'm only matching my Jesus. I'm not outdoing him. God could never have let Abraham go through that. Because then it would have set a precedent. You want to show your devotion to me? You take their life. And that is not like the character of God. Because he says, I want to show my devotion to you. I take my own. Isaac was never going to be that lamb. The late Christian and theologian, Brendan Manning, I know some people have issues with him. If you're familiar with Brendan Manning, he struggled with alcoholism. He was a preacher, he was a theologian, he was an author, and he struggled with alcoholism his whole life. Eventually it killed him. He died of something called wet-brained. He couldn't beat it. But this is a man who constantly had to crawl back to the feet of Jesus on an hourly or daily basis and ask for mercy and forgiveness. But he said years ago, the greatest single cause of atheism today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The question for us today, my friends, is what might God ask you to sacrifice in your life? What might be some ways in which We love God only with our words and not with our actions. How are we showing love for God in the way we forgive others? Because he's forgiven us. How are we showing love for God through our, dare I say, social media posts? Now that we're entering another election cycle, another tense election cycle. How are we showing love for God in the things that we post How are we showing love for God in the way that we extend grace to people? Because he has extended grace to us. How are we showing our love for God through our actions? Through our devotions to him. What I find really interesting in Acts chapter 6, is there's a bit of tension between um, the Jews that are widowed and the non-Jews that are widowed, what they call Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews. Okay, So you got these two groups of people, and they're widowed and they're suffering because they don't have spouses. Their husbands have died and they're starving. So the early apostles, the early disciples look and see, how can we deal with this issue? And so they begin to feed them. Basically, they take what they have and they begin to feed these people, these women. What's interesting to me is it says that the priests saw this and became believers The priests saw what the Jews were doing to non-Jews and became believers. They saw the way they were taking care of the widows and became believers. How are our actions demonstrating our commitment and love for God? I'll conclude on this final painting here. This is a painting by a gentleman named Mark Chagall. Um, it is actually hanging in our office I believe this one was hanging in our office. Um, we have an art gallery at our office in Atlanta. Um, and Mark Chagall was a Jew. but he was fascinated with the cruc- with Jesus. He was fascinated with Jesus. And if you see in this picture, this is his picture on the sacrifice of Isaac here. You've got the angel coming down to stop him. You see Abram's holding the knife. In the bushes, you see Sarah. You see a ram also in that tree. But Chagall was interesting. Because even though he was a Jewish man, he, was, he would find little ways to put Jesus in a painting. So a lot of his paintings have this picture of the cross somewhere. And if you look up in the upper right-hand corner you'll see Jesus on a cross up there. The blood going from the cross down to Abraham. I don't know if Chagall ever put that link together. I don't know. It'd be odd for a Jewish man to see Jesus connected closely and intimately with that story of provision and lamb. But I do think it's interesting that he put in that piece, that picture, I get that the Old Testament makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes. And sometimes we'd be really happy if if the Bible just started at Matthew. We don't deal with war. In fact, my life would be a lot easier. I would have a whole lot less questions to answer about genocides in the Old Testament and this kind of story and a whole bunch of other things. Because people always say, well, God is so mean and nasty in the Old Testament. But he's so loving in the new. And I'd say, "Uh uh-uh, he's actually the same. He's a God of judgment, of justice, of mercy, and of love in the Old Testament. And he's a God of judgment and justice and love and mercy in the new. What changes from the Old Testament to the new is on whom the punishment falls. In the Old Testament, the punishment falls on humanity for their sin and its judgment but also is love. And in the New Testament, we see a shift. Where people still do, we see it in Acts, suffer the consequence of their sin, but you see a massive shift where now punishment predominantly falls on Jesus. Judgment and love falls on God Himself. I don't think we can fully understand the New Testament if it's not for the old. And so it's worth wrestling through some of these things that make us a little uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Remember that just because you don't know the answer to something does not mean there isn't an answer. It just means you don't know it. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we would just read what John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we'd be like, well, that's interesting that Jesus was called an animal. animal. But because of the Old Testament sacrificial system, because of stories like this, we understand that a lamb was sacrificed to God very often. That's common practice. You don't understand who Jesus fully is if you don't see the beauty in the Isaiah verses that prophesy. About him being, in fact, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament gospel author—Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John of the four. Because there's so much Jesus in the Old Testament. I love that we sing the Father's House song. That was such a great pick. It's one of my favorite songs. One of my repeat songs. I'm one of those annoying people that finds a song and repeats it for literally like three weeks. Um, that's been one of my repeat songs. It says, check your shame at the door because it ain't welcome anymore. Can I tell you how liberating that is for us as Christians? This is not a talk of condemnation. This is not a talk of shame. This is not a talk where you're supposed to walk away thinking like, man, I am just a horrible, horrible person. Because my actions haven't always lined up. Welcome to personhood. Jesus actually knows that. Which is why he said, you can't deal with your wrongs because you can't get it right. And so I'm going to do it. The whole not the whole point, but a major point of the cross is that you can't get it right. So he's got to do it for you. So this isn't about shame. Leave that junk at the door. It's not welcome here. Jesus frees us from that shame. And when I heard that song for the first time, that's what it did. It freed me from my past regrets. Because you may be surprised to know there's things I've done that I regret. That make me cringe. But to know that they don't define me anymore, to know that I am I am not all of my worst things. That's freeing. And I think we can show our devotion to God and our love for God and we can reflect Christ in the way we respond to our sin. Falling at his knees like a Brendan Manning. God, I'm not worthy. I can never get it right. Thank you for your death because without it, my life would be all about my sin. So please don't leave here with that attitude of shame. Even in failure, we glorify God by repentance and the way we respond. But let me leave you with one final thought. If you met somebody, let's say from a foreign planet and they'd come here, let's say they know nothing about Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, any of those things. What would they conclude about Christianity by looking at the world around us today? What would they conclude about what Christianity is by looking at the world around us today? Maybe it's something that we can give a little bit of thought to this week. Thanks, guys. It's
0: always good to um, see a good friend. But it's even better when that good friend expands your understanding of creation and of the one who made everything around us. Um, I appreciate tremendously Alicia taking the time and the effort to come across the country and to be with us here this morning and as she shared. Father, I thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament, Lord. I thank you for how that weaves together and gives us context and understanding. And I thank you so much for how, at least you just unpacked that for us today. And so, Lord, I ask your blessing upon her and your provision and protection upon her. We lift up the entire uh, RZIM crew, especially in the recent loss of their founder, Ravi. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to guide them in their organizational efforts and in their efforts to continue to um, not just offend the faith, but to advance the gospel around the globe. Lord, as a church, as we continue to process what it means to operate in this country in this heightened time of awareness, guide us, Lord, everything from our conversation to our postings to our personal interactions. We are committed, Lord, to coming to a greater understanding of you and then having that act out in our lives. Guide us in these things, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.